So um, I didn't plan well. Um, I was um, assigned and, and agreed to preach on the day when we're emphasizing rest, and Trebekah and I, beginning tonight, are starting the Catalina Trail um, with 70 pounds total. So I'm not at rest, all right? I'm just going to confess that to you right now. I have other things on my mind as well. So, But you know, um, along with baptism and Eucharist and confirmation, preaching is a sacramental act. In other words, when we hear the Word of God being read and proclaimed on Sunday morning, God's grace is coming to us as we encounter the living Lord Jesus Christ through the Word. And that happens in preaching as long as the preacher sticks to the biblical text, the Word of God. But sometimes the preacher, in this case moi, finds himself arguing with the text. For instance, this passage in Matthew that we just uh, heard is strange. Jesus says his burden is light. And that's fine until you realize that the verses in context in the previous chapter uh, is where he sent his disciples out like sheep among wolves and warned them about all the dangers that are ahead in their mission. That doesn't sound like a light burden to me. And then just before this morning's passage, John's disciple, John the baptizer's disciples, come to Jesus asking him, what the Sam Hill is John doing in prison if Jesus is the Messiah? And that makes you ask, what kind of yoke is Jesus asking John to bear? And then our passage describes Jesus as gentle right after He blasts three cities for their sinfulness, preaches judgment to the unrepentant, and characterizes some people as childish. That sounds anything but gentle to me. So you have to ask yourself, what's going on in this text? But I think there's a clue in what follows this text in Matthew's Gospel. Because what follows is the story of Jesus' disciples picking grain on the Sabbath And in doing so, offending those who followed a mass of traditional interpretations of the law. I mean, it's as if that story is a commentary on what we heard from Jesus in this morning's text. The pile of religious traditions that had, had grown up over the centuries. That is a burdensome yoke for people who don't have the strength to bear a long list of legalistic rules contrary to Jesus' yoke that is light. At least that's what Jesus says. His yoke is light. But that doesn't clear everything up either. Because what is Jesus' yoke, and, and how can he call it light? I mean, think about this. A yoke does not conjure up images of rest. It doesn't sound like a sort of mattress to me. A yoke is a device for work. It's not what you would think that weary folks need. They need a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus is saying that the most restful gift that he can give the weary is a new way to plow through life. We can't get away from burdens in our lives. We can't. But Jesus gave us a new way of working through them. His yoke 
is obedience, but an obedience that will develop in us a way of life that beats any other way of life. It's as if he's saying to his audience, you are under a yoke that makes you weary right now. Try mine. You see, no Jewish teacher, no Jewish teacher had ever told another person, take my yoke upon you. But this is what Jesus does. He says, take my yoke. Israel often spoke of taking the yoke of the Torah. Since for Israel, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, tells us exactly God's nature, God's purposes, and what God expects us to do. And that's good. And Jesus doesn't undermine that. But Matthew, Matthew's gospel, portrays Jesus as the new Moses. For example, Matthew's gospel is sectioned into five blocks or units. And each block or unit of Matthew's gospel ends with these words, when Jesus had finished these sayings. It's as if Jesus is saying, you know those first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah? Look, I'm the Torah. I am God's law. I am the revelation of what God is up to, of what God's purposes for humankind are. I am the new and greater Moses who reinterprets the law, such as I have done for you disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus not only fulfills the law by saying, come to me, but he is the new lawgiver who then says, take my yoke, learn from me, go to school with me. And, and he says, you'll do that by following me, by following Jesus, because you see, a yoke, it isn't something that you rest on. It's something that you have to walk with. A yoke is something that we bear that enables us to do what we were created to do in life. And so we're confronted with a choice. Jesus is giving us a choice. Take on Jesus' yoke that gives freedom and peace and rest. Or take on some other yoke that destroys freedom and peace and rest. Jesus' yoke is light because it enables us to meet its demands, and because its demands, the demands of Jesus' yoke, perfectly fit us who are created for fellowship with God and with one another. In other words, Jesus' yoke is a way of teaching us how to love God and to love one another. Several years ago, when we lived in Wheaton, uh, I'd been preaching on a regular basis at a church in Oak Park, Illinois, and one Saturday afternoon, I got a call that one of the parishioners uh, had attempted suicide. She failed, uh, but the incident was big news at church that next morning. Her husband asked um, if he could meet with me the following day. And so we met for lunch, and as we talked over lunch, the story unraveled. His wife had been having an affair, and her suicide attempt was her way of dealing with the guilt, complicated way of confessing her sin, if you will, and, and expressing her shame. And as he put it, in fact, his first words when I sat down is, um, I'm in deep mire, although he didn't use the word mire. 
used a word I won't use this morning. Their marriage was never restored, and after months of counseling and prescription drugs, uh, he got back on his feet and he remarried. But I remember returning to my office that day after lunch, thinking, you know, to this culture, faithful monogamy may look boring, but it sure beats what David is experiencing. (laughs) Or to put it in the context of our gospel lesson this morning, I'd rather be wearing Jesus' yoke than the yoke my friend has to wear. You see, Jesus' yoke can become a burden. Yeah, it could. If we thought that we could justify ourselves before God by keeping Jesus' rule of life, and, and, and that temptation to justify ourselves before God by taking on his yoke is exacerbated by a culture's yoke that teaches us that we have to succeed in life in order to be accepted. You know, we're terrified by the prospect that, uh, of failing to win the recognition and the love that we crave in a consumerist and competitive society. Oftentimes, we're, we're like that kid who says in the movie, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, Sadly, we often only accept the love that we think we deserve. That's a burdensome yoke. And Jesus doesn't expect us to treat his yoke that way. Taking up Jesus' yoke doesn't make God love us more. Taking up Jesus' yoke doesn't make God love us more. In fact, listen again to his invitation. The ones to whom he said, come to me. The only people that Jesus invited, he said, are the weary and the heavily burdened. Those who are at the end of their rope. Those who are the needy, not the self-sufficient. Those who are discouraged. Those who are burdened indeed. Those who feel inadequate. Those are the ones he invited. And that's where the Apostle Paul comes in with his letter to the Romans, in in this incredible passage that Jerry read for us this morning. It's as if if, uh, he's unpacking Jesus' exclusive invitation to the weary and the heavy burdened, because Paul is loud and clear. God doesn't love us when we can help ourselves or when we are good. God doesn't love us in that way. God loves us when we were still powerless, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, and Paul even adds, when we were God's enemies. Brothers and sisters, um, that's shocking. God's love is for the undeserving. That's so contrary to the yoke our culture wants us to wear. Our goodness, even taking up Jesus' yoke, is not responsible for God's love. Here's Paul. God loves the godless. God died for the godless. God justifies the godless. The reason that you and I are objects of God's love this morning is because you and I are sinners. That's it. It's not because we're good. In fact, God demonstrated this not by saying, well, My thoughts and prayers are with you. God demonstrated this, says Paul, because Christ died for us. 
I mean, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Pay close attention to how that passage in Romans starts, the verb tense, having been justified. It's done. It's a done deal. God's acceptance of us is total. It's not partial. God's acceptance of us isn't if. It's not conditional. It is absolutely unconditional. The fact that we cannot justify ourselves before God is even reinforced by in Paul's statement that God's agape love, agape love, is lavished on us. It's a love that is pure madness because it isn't motivated by the worth or the value of the one who is loved. It doesn't even depend on whether we love God in return. It's not because we are worthy that God loves us. In fact, God's love does something for the object of his love that the object of his love can't do. God's love places value and worth on the other, on the beloved. And so this peace with God that Paul starts out with, this rest that Jesus invites us to experience, it's not some sort of psychological or emotional state. It's not a feeling. It's a condition. It's a state. It's where we are. It's it's what we are in life, lived to the fullest. It's the abundant life that Jesus promised. That's the rest. That's the peace with God. We've been set free from everything that could mess up our relationship with God so that we can go on to experience life with others in God's creation as God intended, as Jesus taught us to live in his yoke. So what is our response to that kind of love? Well, we accept the invitation to wear the yoke of the one who loves us that much. And Paul puts it this way. If God saves us by his death, how much more will he save us by his life? See, God destroys his enemies. Get this. God destroys his enemies by making them his friends. And so uh, if he died for us when we were his enemies... How much more is he going to live for us and do in our lives now that we are his reconciled friends? And then, or Jesus puts it this way, I am the teacher who's gentle. I'm the one who's patient. Jesus is the one whose spirit aids us. He's the one who will comfort us along the way because he teams up with those who bear his yoke. A lot of commentators have noticed that the yoke was often carried by two animals. We're not wearing Christ's yoke on our own. We've been made friends with God now. We are with God, who is going to be our faithful friend as we're yoked together. So taking Jesus' yoke is, is both a joy and a task. It's a task of living out the teaching of the new Moses, Jesus Christ, teaching such as the Sermon on the Mount. But that's what wearing Jesus' yoke uh, make, well, that's what makes it exciting. We, we are freed to live the abundant life that Jesus promised that's summed up in his commands of how we are supposed to go about loving God and loving our neighbors. You know, sometimes we hear um, that a soldier has made the ultimate sacrifice for his country because he loved his country. Well, how much more did God make the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice for his enemies because he loved his enemies. And now, he, now this Jesus calls us to do the same thing. 
to bless those who persecute us, to love and forgive our enemies. No wonder Christians might experience the suffering that Paul speaks of in our passage this morning, because it is not popular to love your enemy in this culture. But that's the yoke that Christ invites us to bear. So the rest or peace that we've been talking about this morning isn't the absence of hard knocks in this life. In fact, the life of faith actually might create the hard knocks. Just as following the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount may create difficulties with those who don't live according to Jesus' teachings, who want to destroy our enemies instead of praying for them and forgiving them. In fact, the Greek word for suffering in verse 3 of the Romans 5 passage has to do not with aches and pains. That Greek word actually is referring to the pushback that those, um, from those who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ, something that would have been very important for Paul's Roman readership to have heard at that time. And that's Paul's point when he says that because we wallow in God's grace. Did you get that? We stand in God's grace. We, we wade in it. We wallow in it. Because we wallow in God's grace, our confidence in what God is up to will never waver in, in, when that adversity hits us. Our confidence should even become stronger because it's not grounded in our performance. Our confidence is grounded in God's love that, that, that fills us with God's Spirit as God's Spirit blows through us as God's church, as Christ's church. So God isn't asking us, you know, he's not asking us to be a masochist, you know. But God is, is just telling us that sharing in Christ's sufferings is the only way to share in his glory. And Paul says that suffering can cultivate the kind of perseverance that, that character um, that, that is character producing. Because here's the deal. Suffering makes you realize you're not self-sufficient. Suffering makes you realize you actually need to depend upon the God who made us and loves us. And so Paul is saying that that suffering teaches us perseverance, teaches us to, uh, to, to rely upon this God. I love that. Listen to the Greek word for perseverance. Hupomone. <laughs> Is that not a great word? They shouldn't even translate it in our English Bibles, right? The sufferings are going to, to, to create in us, cultivate in us, hupamone. That's patient endurance. It's as if Jesus is saying, hang in there. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Church, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. And church, we have nothing to prove, nothing to prove as we wait on God who will fulfill all of his promises. We are so loved by God that as Phil Yancey put it, there is nothing that you do that will make God love you more and there is nothing that you will do that will make God love you less. We are wallowing in God's grace. And so we respond by coming forward later this morning to this table to be received by Jesus at that table. As he invites us who were once his enemies to celebrate his friendship, as he says once again, come to me, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, you who are uh, burdened. 
Take my yoke because it fits you perfectly to make you the kind of church that will share with the world the freedom and the peace and the rest that this world so desperately needs. And to that invitation, as we receive him in our hands this morning, we will say with confidence, Amen. Amen. So let's just take a little bit of time just to reflect on these words, not of mine so much as of Jesus and of Paul's. Come to this Jesus who accepts you, who were once his enemies, who were once godless, because he loves you not based on your performance, not based on your worth, but simply because he's a God who loves us.